0: The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food and food. Health and Agriculture, and Find Food Truth. And today, I am absolutely delighted to welcome a very unique registered dietitian. She is a colleague, but she has a completely unique and different kind of job. Pamela Malo is a registered dietitian who travels 48 weeks of the year on a national health and nutrition survey. She holds a master's degree in nutrition from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She is also a yoga instructor, which probably helps out because she lives in hotels. But what she does is she works for a survey called NHANES. And NHANES is simply the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey It is designed to assess the health and nutritional status of adults and children in the United States. And we're going to talk about the survey. We're going to talk about Pamela's life on the road and what it takes to be this kind of traveling, assessing dietitian. So, Pamela, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Melinda.
0: Now, I am speaking to you from your present location, which is Seattle, Washington. And prior to this, you were in Kansas.
1: Yes, that is
0: correct. And you've been traveling like this on the road for five years. Is that right? Mhm. That is that is true. Well, tell me, what made you or what led you to this kind of career where you don't really ever have roots of your own?
1: I had never actually heard of this position until a friend actually emailed me the job description. And she said, oh, my goodness, Pamela, this job looks right up your alley. They are looking for a traveling, bilingual, dietary interviewer to work on a national health study, and you'll get to travel the whole country and interview people. And it did sound it did sound like my ideal job. However, I had actually just quit a job that I had been working in corporate America, and I had just moved to Peru. <laughs> so I wasn't in a position to actually apply for the job, but I did contact Westat Research Corporation, who has the contract to carry out the survey for NCHS, and they just told me to be in touch when I returned home, so that's exactly what I did, and there was fortunately still an opening, so I signed up, not completely knowing what life is going to be like, but up for, up for the adventure, and it turned out to be... Absolutely wonderful. And NCHS,
0: we should let our listeners know, stands for the National Center for Health Statistics, and that's exactly what you're measuring. And you are speaking today independent of that entity. Is that correct?
1: Yep, that's correct. Everything I'd like to share will just be strictly my own experiences and opinions, and I'm not speaking on behalf of, of Westet or NCHS.
0: Okay, wonderful. Now, the survey examines a nationally representative sample of about 5,000 persons each year. How many of those 5,000 do you particularly interview?
1: I would interview approximately a quarter of those because there are two teams and there are two dietary interviewers on each team.
0: Okay, and you're given a set of questions. How many questions do you ask about diet and health?
1: Basically, how our interview was structured is that the bulk of the time is doing uh, a 24-hour dietary recall, where I ask the participants to list out everything that they ate and drank the day prior to coming into the examination center. And then we go through and we list the times that they ate the food, the occasion, whether it was breakfast or lunch or dinner. And then for every item on their list, we go through one by one, and I'll ask them, pretty detailed questions. You know, if they reported they had coffee, I'll say, was it regular, decaffeinated, or something else? And then I'll ask if they had cream and sugar in it, and how much, and so on and so forth. So the length of the interview uh, really depends upon the number of foods and beverages that the participant ate and drank. And then there's a short section where we ask about supplement use, Uh and we also ask about fish consumption. And then at the very end of the interview... We invite the individual to do a second interview, generally the following week by telephone, so that for every individual we'll get two days of data, which provides a much more reliable sample regarding what they generally tend to eat and drink.
0: And then you compare what is consumed with the kinds of diseases or medical conditions that they
1: bring to the table, is that correct? Yep, exactly, as well as we make links with their, with their blood work. And it's a um, very comprehensive comparison that's done between a lot of the different components in the exam center.
0: How does a person get to participate in the survey?
1: Well, first, different counties are selected by NCHS, and there's 15 locations that are selected per year. And within each county, there are segments that are chosen based upon census information and the demographics of who we expect to live there. Sometimes that does change by the time we show up because the census is only done every 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are different types of media that are done. Letters are sent to households. Um, Local health departments and government agencies are notified that we will be coming so that this isn't a surprise and people are willing to know that. First of all, that it's legitimate, and second of all, are, are willing to participate. Okay. So then there is a team of interviewers who arrive before the medical staff do, and they, they knock on these doors, and they do a quick preliminary screening to find out who lives there, ages, the basic demographics, and find out if the individuals in the household are eligible to participate. And Some people in the household might be selected, all of them might be selected, or none of them could be selected. And then those individuals that are selected receive a very extensive interview in their home, which can last a couple of hours. And then after that is when they come and would see the folks I work with in the medical exam center and receive the examinations and interviews done there. So the medical exam center is like a trailer, is that correct? Yeah, actually, it's four tractor trailers that are connected together with an interconnect, and inside the trailers there are 13 exam rooms, a lobby, a laboratory, three bathrooms, and a staff lounge. Wow. Yeah. So
0: during the preliminary interview, you mentioned that some people might be disqualified. What would disqualify someone?
1: Well basically we're looking for a representative sample of the united states when it comes to age gender ethnicity income and through statistics which are outside of my 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 expertise they they know the that information of of who they who they're looking for which areas they need to sort of slots i guess you could say perhaps that they need to fill mhm and yeah. then Based on the information of who we've sampled and who we need to sample, someone could be selected or, or not selected. And we also do oversampling. Originally, when I first began, we were oversampling Mexican-Americans and pregnant women. Hmm. Now, currently, we're in a phase where we're oversampling Asian-Americans.
0: Because there had been a lack of data in that subset of the population?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Now, I noticed that if you go to the NHANES website, um, and, and you can just, listeners, you can just Google this, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and you can pull up an amazing assortment of information and details about our national sampling. But it says that what it does is it, it the survey assesses the health and nutritional status of adults and children. So what I want to know is how young and how old is the range?
1: It goes from... Newborn infants up until we 've had people over hundred years old actually come in and participate wow, so
0: that 's almost a unique subsample in itself, you know to get at what are the secrets to longevity yes exactly.
1: Well, exactly
0: one of the one of the things I noticed on one of the home pages for the survey is that in addition to finding out things like what kinds of drugs are you taking and supplements and do you drink low fat milk versus whole milk? There is some updated data on looking at urinary pesticide levels, urinary mercury. They look at blood lead levels. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of components to this survey that people might not ordinarily think would be part of a nutritional health survey.
1: No, that's true. That's true. The environmental sampling and the comparison of, like you said, the blood mercury levels and, and pesticides in the urine. And Haynes actually was the research that led to unleaded gasoline because it was this this research that discovered that people had too much lead in their blood. So that led to policy changes that gave us unleaded gasoline.
0: Wow. This is a really important job that you're doing. And
1: I must say, it's got to be
0: difficult.
1: Yeah, definitely at times. it It is not so much the the work of the interviewing, because I absolutely love that, meeting so many people from so many different corners of the country. The hardest part for me, generally, is just the lifestyle. It has a lot of wonderful perks, getting to see so many places. But sometimes it is hard because we just go home twice a year. We get a summer break, and then we go home again at the end of December for another holiday break. Mm-hmm. So those stretches in between sometimes can can be a little bit a little bit difficult. Are most of the people
0: that choose this job and lifestyle are they typically young people?
1: We have both. We have some young people who are starting out their careers and who are footloose, and then we also have some older people who have had their children and are coming out on the road because they have you know the flexibility to do so
0: and i imagine that you develop an alternative family with the people that you're
1: traveling with is that true yeah we do we definitely get together and have different social events and then and you know we'll have dinner together at least once a stand and we also sometimes <laughs> um just go go about and do our own things sure as well. sure
0: all right now you mentioned that you visit 15 counties across the country each year. Did
1: I understand that correctly? The survey as a whole does, and there are actually two medical teams that are identical in makeup who have their own stops. So my team will go to seven or eight, and the other team will go to seven or eight locations per year.
0: Okay. And how long are you going to be then? Oh, help me with the math.
1: Oh, how, sure.
0: how long will you be then? You've just relocated. You were in Kansas. How long were you in Kansas?
1: We spend each location between four to six weeks. Okay. And then we have between two days and two weeks in between cities to get to our next location based upon the distance.
0: Now, when you go to different locations, you're you're interviewing totally different populations many times with different geographical health concerns. So, for example, you were in Kansas. I, I would assume that exposure to certain say pesticides that are used in that particular part of the country will be very different from what you may find in Seattle where you don't have a, the same kind of agriculture. So are you testing for the same kind of blood metabolites or or contaminants in blood and urine as you do in all sites or Yes. Okay. So there isn't a unique set of questions per region.
1: That is correct. That is correct. And also the data is not released per location, in part to guarantee anonymity, and also because the sample that we take at each location is not necessarily representative of that location. It's representative as a part of the national sample. Mm -hmm. Have you had any uh
0: aha moments
1: during this? One of my aha moments would have to be in regards to the food deserts because that's something that I'd heard about and read about in graduate school and I'd always associated them with being in the inner cities but what surprised me is to find them actually in agricultural communities Mm. in the middle of, you know, where our food is actually being grown and produced to find that local, affordable, fresh, produce is is really hard to come by.
0: Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Pamela Malo. She is a registered dietitian with a very unique job. She has a master's from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, but she uses those public health skills in traveling 48 weeks of the year on a National Health and Nutrition Survey, also known as NHANES. And for those of us in dietetics and health, we just... We devour this data because it allows us, as you mentioned before with the lead, it allows us to look at what people eat and how that might be related to different kinds of health conditions, and a lot of health conditions, I might add, everything from anemia to osteoporosis and kidney disease and hearing loss and everything in between. So you had mentioned that one of the surprises or the aha moments that you had was that you realize that there were food deserts in rural agricultural communities, but maybe we should step back and say, what is a food desert?
1: A food desert would be an area that has a lack of access to fresh and healthy foods.
0: Mm.
1: And what did
0: you find with regard to hunger then related to those food deserts? Did you find more people reporting hunger, or do you, do you even ask that question?
1: You know, we used to ask that question questions about hunger and food security but that actually has been taken out at least temporarily from the survey. So I don't actually I can't actually unfortunately answer that question.
0: Do you know why the question was removed?
1: They cycle in and cycle out a few different smaller subcomponents of the survey and that was one that that got taken out. Now I'm assuming that
0: you've got your series of questions that you're asking in the survey but then maybe people might want to contribute comments is that right? Contribute comments? Yes.
1: Yes, especially if they've had an unusual day, which seems to happen a lot. They People want to make sure that the data collectors and, and people analyzing the data know that they don't typically eat McDonald's twice a day, but it was an unusual exception. <laughs> And sometimes I also are looking for advice which is difficult because in my role mm. I'm I'm not in a position to be able to offer offer advice.
0: I think as dietitians we're sort of trained to want to help people eat better and there you are sitting there with all of this data and you have to you just have to be a data collector and not a nutrition educator. Is right. that
1: right? Exactly. Exactly. Now do people ask you to help them though? I mean, how do you cross that bridge or do you? It doesn't happen very frequently the way the interview is structured, it's more of me asking them the questions and them responding. So it's sometimes at the very end I'll have someone who, you know, will will want to ask a specific question, especially if often women who have children oh, yes. want to know if they're if they're doing it right and, and how, how they are with the nutrition for their child. Are so, you allowed
0: <laughs> to answer that?
1: No, unfortunately not. I'm I'm really just not in the in the role to to give out any information and I don't have anything on hand. And I also don't have a complete me personally a complete profile of anyone's health status in regards to, you know, if if they have any health conditions that that they have.
0: So, can you refer them to places for help within their
1: communities? Not specifically, but I'd always suggest that they talk to their doctor or if it's a child, you know, their school nurse, whoever whoever they might have easy access to who could give them information or provide them, you know, with someone specific to speak to.
0: I'm sure you had the same training. I think dietitians go through the same coursework largely. And uh, one of the things that we were taught is that when somebody is giving you a diet history, you try to remain stoic. Uh, you don't want to show, you know, you don't want to gasp out loud when somebody tells you that they're drinking a two-liter bottle of soda a day. But during our little conversation, can you tell me were there any times when somebody reported a dietary intake to you that you had to say to yourself, Pamela, don't gasp?
1: <laughs> no, I think at this point I probably heard it all. So... I guess the things that that make me gasp sometimes are actually the really healthy interviews, because unfortunately those are the less common, mm. and often i'm I'm gasping in a positive way, you know when I have a family who comes in and their their kids are eating fruits and vegetables, and their their parents are preparing whole grains and and the children are actually eating them so. yeah,
0: so now do you ask about where the families get their food from?
1: Mhm. Every item we ask if they got it from a grocery store or a restaurant or a friend mm-hmm.
0: oh interesting, so how about gardening? Do people report that they have gardens, or do you see you know you've you've been doing this job for five years, and I think that's probably long enough to maybe start witnessing a little bit of a trend
1: you know actually that's true I, I would say that there is in my in my experience there does seem to be an increase in people reporting getting things from from gardens it's still not. Not very common by any stretch of the imagination, but more so than when I first started.
0: And it probably varies with the part of the country, I would think, too.
1: Yes, Mm-hmm. absolutely. In
0: doing this work and doing these surveys, do certain things jump out at you as being areas where you might advise other dietitians to focus their energies? For example, I'm assuming that you see a lot of soft drink consumption. Would I be yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Are are there any other dietary practices that you might want to let us know about that might need a little tweaking on the public health side?
1: Mm, that's a great question. The main things that come to mind are, are sort of the ones that I think that we hear a lot about. That definitely the soft drinks, and also processed foods and snack foods. Those are those are very very commonly reported. Mhm. And do most people get their food
0: from a supermarket? I'm assuming. Yes. That's the number one. Do you ask about school lunch at all, like for the yes. children that are eating at school, and do you see differences across the country in what kids are eating at school? I ask that because, you know, we're seeing some trends nationally and where schools are taking a lot of the junk out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're removing soda machines, for example, just due to pressure, parent and teacher concerns about children's weight. You measure height and weight, of course, in addition to other things. Are you the one that does the height and weight, or is that a nurse that does that?
1: No, we have health technicians who, who do the height and weight. My primary role is the dietary interview, but I also do administer the oral glucose tolerance test. Oh, yeah. The the Trutol test, and I also explain to participants about the physical activity monitors, which is a device that we ask participants to wear for a week. It's sort of like a watch, and um, that measures, it's an accelerometer, that measures the amount of movement that they have during that time period. And then the final component that I occasionally will also do is explain the home urine collection, which is a test that we ask the participants to collect, which will measure protein in their urine from a sample first thing in the morning right when they wake up, and that's to check for any sign of kidney function or kidney disease.
0: Oh, I see.
1: Now, you mentioned
0: something in between the oral glucose tolerance test and the physical activity monitoring about, did you say stand tall?
1: The the too tall test?
0: The too tall. Too tall?
1: Too tall the glucose, the too tall, that's, that's just what we call it. Oh, that's tolerance.
0: the glucose tolerance. Okay. Yes. All right. We don't have that much more time remaining in our interview, and I want to make sure that I give you a chance to talk about aspects of your job or components of the survey that you'd like our listeners to know.
1: I think what's most humbling for me is to realize that every person who comes and sits down in my office represents on average 60,000 other Americans. So it really transforms the headlines that I see in the newspapers and on television and gives them an individual face to put with these headlines. And it, it personalizes the statistics that sometimes can become a little bit less personable when they're just numbers on a page.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really kind observation. I can see why why you make such a good interviewer.
1: Oh, Thank you, Melinda.
0: What else about your job?
1: What else? Do
0: you see increasing trends in diet-related diseases? We see those Centers for Disease Control maps, for example, that show this alarming increase in obesity and heart disease and diabetes, and I'm assuming those maps are generated from your interviews.
1: Yes. Unfortunately, I actually don't personally see the data. I collect it all, and then it gets analyzed, and I I mean, I certainly see news briefs and information, but I don't always know exactly what, what the trends are doing until we go to our annual meetings and are given the slide presentations from the folks who have have done the analysis. Hmm.
0: In addition to the lead policy changes, can you recall, are there any other policy changes that come to mind as a result of your data collection?
1: Hmm. The policy changes?
0: I mean, I wonder if some of the dietary guideline changes are connected to the Health and Nutrition Survey, too.
1: Oh they absolutely are. This is this is one of the primary sources of of information that are used to to know, you know, where we stand. And it's not so much a policy, but I do know that also for example that the reason that grains are fortified in this country also stems back to dietary data revealing that, you know, we didn't have enough iron in our you we know, we're, weren't eating enough foods with iron, so grains were fortified. And I also know that, for example, birth, the connection between neural tube defects and a lack of folic acid is also derived from NHANES data. So there's a lot of ways that this information has infiltrated, you know, the common American's daily life, and they may or may not have any any idea of where it actually originated. Right. Well, I was
0: wondering, for example, the new dietary guidelines that came out with a much stronger emphasis on reducing sodium, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that isn't reflecting the kinds of data that you're collecting on how much sodium people really eat.
1: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, if people want to learn more about the survey Am I right to advise them to simply Google the National Health and Examination Survey? Mm-hmm. Um, are there other places where people can go for information where, where this data is collected and presented to the American public?
1: I would say that that's the best resource, and they can also, you know, contact me if there's any specific areas that they, they'd like information on, and I can also follow up with folks who I work with and pass that request along. And how would they contact you, Pamela? My email address is malo, M-A-L-O, uh-huh. dot Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, okay. at gmail.com.
0: Okay. We've got one minute to wrap up. Do you have a final send-off message for our listeners?
1: <laughs> Not that I can think of.
0: Not that I can think of. Okay, well, I think your job is extremely interesting from from many levels. I have to wonder about, you know, there you are going around the country doing this health survey, and I wonder, is anybody monitoring the people who who do the surveys, right? <laughs> because you're living on the road and you're, prob-
1: right. <laughs> you're probably... How is our health? <laughs> right, right.
0: How is your health? Yeah. Are there... Uh, are, what are the challenges for you on the road? I'm assuming absolutely eating in a hotel.
1: Yeah. We always are housed in a hotel with kitchens, if that's possible. But in some of the smaller towns and, and rural areas, that's not always possible. So I've learn to you know get creative with the George Foreman grill and the crock pots and also be really flexible when it comes to even just the food that I buy you know there's no brand loyalty or ability to be too particular because you may fall in love with something and then not see it again for for a few months so and the same with exercise um, learning learning the local areas that are great to explore you know we may or may not we might be on a busy highway or we might be in a rural area that's great for walking. So it always just depends. It's different every every time.
0: Well Pamela, I wanna thank you so much for your time and for the work that you do. It's critically important to national health policy. We've been speaking with Pamela Malo and she is a registered dietitian who works on the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, traveling forty eight weeks of the year. I want to thank our listeners for being with us today. Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for being with us, listeners, and thank you, Pamela.
1: Thank you so much.